Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table Podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. Imagine a world where from a very young age, kids are given the tools to cope with stress, anxiety and overwhelm. Imagine the possibilities for their future endeavours. Imagine what kind of a world they have the ability to create. Today, I'm joined by founder of the Mindful Future Project, Jody Gein. Jody is a committed mindfulness teacher and conducts training in mindfulness for corporations, staff and students in schools, parents, athletes, and community groups. In this interview, we focus on the importance of teaching mindfulness young. Whether you have children or not, this conversation is invaluable. Jody takes us through some easy and manageable mindful techniques that will benefit kids from the age of two to 92. If mindfulness and meditation has been a struggle for you in the past, then I am confident you will find the answers you are looking for here today. Enjoy. actually be a human rights lawyer and mediator at the Human Rights Commission where I ran a team of lawyers and mediators resolving breaches of human rights in cases of discrimination. But having previously been in litigation, I loved mediating disputes rather than seeing them go through to court, which is extremely stressful and quite emotionally draining for all the parties. It was really rewarding work, but it was also really challenging, particularly Mm -hmm. working in the immigration detention centres. So after some years, I really felt that the system I was working in really didn't allow for that deeper transformation that I was seeking. And it often seemed like we were just offering Band-Aid solutions. I really wanted to work on a much deeper level to, to help affect positive change in the world. So I had actually studied psychology at university and always continued my studies, particularly in positive psychology and coaching, even while I was working as a lawyer. I also studied every type of spiritual tradition I could find. I read all the great books and attended seminars and courses from all the great spiritual teachers. And I just felt that this would eventually be my path. Mm. So when I left law to start a family, I set up a small business doing executive coaching. But when I became pregnant with my second child, I had to let it go. And when the kids were really little, they both had some serious health challenges and I became terribly, terribly stressed. I turned back to meditation and mindfulness to really help me through. 
And I had meditated since I was young because we grew up with a meditation room at home. That the passion is actually my background. Yeah. Um, but this time I committed in a way that I'd really never done before. And it, I found that it just transformed my life so completely that I became more and more interested in sharing the benefits. And it finally became clear to me that this was my path. And I feel it so completely and I'm so passionate about it that I feel that I do this work no matter what. Yeah, so Mindful Future is really about bringing more light into the world, one soul at a time. And in the work that I did at the Human Rights Commission, it was really all about changing the world or changing the whole by helping the individual. Mm. There's this great story that I love about an old man walking along a beach where thousands of fish have beached themselves but they're still alive. And he walks along picking up one fish at a time and throwing them back into the sea. And this little boy runs alongside him and asks the old man, you know, why do you bother? You can't possibly get to all of them. What you're doing doesn't matter. And the old man leans down and he picks up a fish and he throws it into the sea. And he turns to the boy and he says, well, it mattered to that one. And that, I feel, is what it's all about. You know, when we turn on a light in our own soul, we help to turn on the lights in souls all around the world. And we're all intricately connected. There's so much darkness and fear in the world right now. But I really believe that there's an equal and opposite force as well, the raising of consciousness around the world. It's undeniably here. And the more we bring mindfulness into our own lives, to the lives of our friends and family, to our community, to teachers, and ultimately to our children, the closer we come to creating a mindful future for us all. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, really beautiful. I love that story of the old man on the beach. Mm. Yeah, it's so special, isn't it? It um, is. Let's, let's just wind it back a little bit and start with the very basics of what mm-hmm. it is that you do. What, how would you describe mindfulness? It's a, it's a tricky one. We try and demystify it as much as possible. Really at its core, mindfulness is about just becoming more self-aware. It's about understanding how our minds work and the connection between our mind and body. When we're stressed, it really affects the way our brain works. We can't think clearly and we become stuck in those primitive reactions. So in the beginning, mindfulness is about learning how to switch from our stress response, our fight or flight or the sympathetic nervous system, over to the parasympathetic nervous system, our resting mode, rest and digest mode. And we do this using our breathing. And what this does is it re-engages parts of our brain involved in awareness and reasoning and decision-making so we can calm down and make better choices in our lives. And then over time, we learn how to pay attention to our thoughts and our emotions in the moment that they arise. And becoming aware of our thinking and our emotional reactions then creates the freedom to choose how we respond instead of being driven mindlessly by our conditioning and habits. This freedom releases us from our stress, from our past, from both the internal and external stressors that just inhibit the natural flow of happiness and gratitude in life. And this also increases our resilience, you know, both our cognitive resilience and our emotional resilience. We learn how to cope effectively with anxiety and panic 
negative thoughts and difficult situations and people. We're not glossing over the bad stuff or ignoring it. Rather, we're learning how to sit with it, to keep turning towards it, and at the same time, learning to also notice the good stuff in life. You know, our natural empathy is heightened. We're able to communicate more effectively and self-regulate. And this makes us happier and we feel more connected and grateful. In, in this world today where technology and environmental concerns and our fear is overwhelming us, we need to know that we have the internal resources to deal with all that life throws our way. Mindfulness gives us access to those resources. When we act from a place of connectedness to ourselves and to others, then we can make better decisions also for our planet as a whole. So I guess, I mean, I guess the benefits of mindfulness are very attractive to everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but putting, putting it into practice at times I think can be a very overwhelming experience for people because they put it in the too hard basket before they even try. I mean, most people um, relate mindfulness to meditation and that is a huge part of it. But what are some of the different ways in which we can practice mindfulness? Yeah, look, I really appreciate your comment that um, a lot of people are scared off by the prospect of practicing mindfulness just because it is, uh, there is so much um, um, dogma around it, I Mm. think. But really, there are so many different ways to practice mindfulness. I mean, the idea that we need to meditate cross-legged on the floor for hours at a time to enjoy the benefits of mindfulness simply is no longer true. I mean, there are more and more studies showing that even small amounts of mindfulness can make huge differences in our lives. And there's so many different avenues, you know, whether it's waking up five minutes earlier and doing a brief body scan or mindful breathing before you get up to start your day or taking a mindful shower or just mindfully making a cup of tea and enjoying drinking it or walking with awareness from your bus stop to to your work, or anchoring yourself in your feet when you're feeling nervous, or even elongating your out-breath when you're feeling anxious, or using breath counting to calm down. I mean, there are so many practices, and they suit every person and pretty much every occasion you can think of. Yeah, and I guess it comes back to what you were saying earlier, which is it's, it's about self-awareness and just being being okay at being with yourself and bringing yourself back to that center that's exactly right and that's really that internal resource that's always with us and that's also why we always you know we use the breath we focus on the breath everybody breathes if you can breathe you can practice mindfulness and we take our breath everywhere we go So it's always there, just like this internal resource is always there and we can always come back to it. So you said said earlier that you grew up with a meditation room in your home. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about that? Yeah, my father actually um, practiced Vipassana meditation and used to go off to the 10-day silent retreats. Yeah, wow. And he grew up doing that. His family did that. He has three brothers and they all did that. Um, and once they got married, a lot of their wives went to these 10-day um, retreats as well. So my dad would come back and um, had the meditation cushions and the little stool and converted our study into a meditation room. And he used to 
sit with us at night when we were going to bed and talk through the breathing with us. Wow. And when we were older, I used to go down into the study and sit next to him and he taught me how to meditate. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to talk to you about the importance of teaching children mindfulness. And I yeah. mean, you, you were lucky to have that as part of your upbringing in your home, but that's not the case for everybody. So maybe let's start with why it's important that we teach kids mindfulness. I mean, I guess the first response for people is, well, what do kids have to be stressed about? But, you know, I think that a lot of our limiting beliefs and our blocked emotions stem from experiences in our childhood that we sort of harbour and don't let go of. Mm. And, I mean, I think that there's so much that can be gained by teaching children young how to be more mindful. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, actually. I mean, by the time we start working with adults, most of us are so stressed you know, we're so caught up in our old fears and worries and anxieties that mindfulness is being offered as a way of addressing stress and mm. depression and pain. The mindfulness obviously can help with these symptoms, but at its core, it's a way of life. You know, if our children learn these skills early on and have access to their internal resources to deal with the inevitable challenges in life, They'll navigate their way with much greater self-confidence and creativity and freedom. You know, it's not just a luxury. It's actually a necessity. Yeah. Children have these incredible minds and they're often more, much more aware of their bodies than we are. I mean, if we can teach them not just knowledge and thinking skills, but how to really investigate the mechanism that's actually doing the thinking, their minds then we give them the gift of managing themselves through all sorts of circumstances in life. Mm. You know, healthier and more resilient, more self-aware children are then more empathetic. They're more connected and less likely to feel alone or be negatively influenced by pop culture or peer pressure and then spiral into anxiety and depression. Yeah, and, I, you know, I did a podcast recently um, about introverts and we were talking about introverted children and how, you know, the school system isn't really set up for them and it can turn them into quite um, kind of anxious and stressed kids because they're so they're kind of being pushed out of their comfort zone quite consistently in order to fit in with that system. So I guess addressing those sorts of issues from the beginning can prevent that. So, it, it, you know, this mindfulness almost becomes a preventative so that these kids can grow up and um, sort of know themselves and be more self-aware. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I work a lot on bringing mindfulness into schools for those exact reasons. Mm. You know, we're seeing so much more of an increase in anxiety and depression among children these days. Yeah. But we're throwing so much more at them than we had to deal with when we were kids. When life's becoming more complex. And we need to be able to choose what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. And these skills of mindfulness give our kids the opportunity to be more in control of their choices and how they see them through. I mean, really, these are life skills that we should all have access to. And I agree, as early on as possible. Yeah, um, I don't have children, but I do know that it must be pretty impossible to get a child to sit down in meditation. So <laughs> what are some of the ways yeah. that we can um, 
teach children to be more mindful? Sure. So I think the first thing we can do is really teach our children how to breathe in a way that engages their vagus nerve, which runs from our brain down into the diaphragm. And when we breathe deeply and consciously, we actually switch the body from our stress response into the relaxation response. And this re-engages the prefrontal cortex to help us to calm down, to think more clearly and to make better decisions. So when I teach the younger children, I ask them to breathe in deeply through their nose as though they're smelling a delicious flower. And then to breathe out longer and a little more forcefully as though they're blowing out a candle. And then with the older kids, I get them to put their hand over their belly button so they can feel their tummy filling up with air like a balloon as they breathe in and then deflating again as they breathe out. With the littlies, it's really nice to get them to lie down on their back with their favorite soft toy on their tummy and then they can watch it rocking back and forth as they breathe down into their belly button. And this is something you can do at home as a parent with your child or even with a group um, in a classroom. I have a very good friend who's done something quite similar to this with her preschool class. So when they're feeling fearful or anxious or panicky about something like an exam or a swimming race or presenting in class or a sports event, we can teach them to take five or ten deep breaths in this way beforehand. And then if they can elongate the out breath, then it works even better. So if they're old enough, you can ask them to count to three as they breathe in and then count to five as they breathe out to make sure that out breath is a little bit longer than the in breath. And that's actually a technique that comes from a practice that's used with people who suffer from panic attacks. So it's a very well-known technique, but this is an easier way of teaching it to kids. Mm. And it's good for so many things. I mean, I was telling you the other day, my little eight-year-old boy gets really anxious about writing in his journal every Monday morning. And after the recent school holidays, he was especially nervous. So we talked through it before he went to school that day and he told me afterwards that it wasn't as bad as he thought. When I asked him what he did differently that made it better this time, he said he'd taken five deep breaths before he started writing and then he wrote two whole pages without stopping. I mean, he was so proud of himself. Yeah, I have to say I was so proud. It's such a <laughs> cute story. I love it. Mm, thank you. So I guess there, I mean, there are two other techniques that I was thinking about that are also really good um, to teach kids. Mm. The, other, the second one was um, helping children to focus on their breathing and to teach them finger breathing. So this is a really, this is actually a favorite with younger kids. So what you do is you ask them to hold up one hand with their palm facing towards them. And then with the index finger of the other hand, they trace up the outside length of their thumb as they breathe in, pausing at the top, and then tracing down the other side of the thumb as they breathe out, and that's one breath. And then tracing up the next finger as they breathe in, pause at the top, and down the finger as they breathe out, and that's two breaths. Then they keep going until they get to five breaths at the end of their fingers, and then come back the other way, just counting their breaths as they go. And this is a really good one to do when there's a lot going on around them and they need to calm down because it gives them something visual to focus on and also something to do with their hands so it's good and kinesthetic. And my daughter uses this sometimes. She's five years old. If we're on a ferry and she's feeling really nervous, which happens sometimes, 
And it's also a really good one to use at night if they're having trouble falling asleep. I might use that one myself. I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. <good>. It's, <laughs> yes, you know, I do teach it to adults sometimes as well, especially parents, um, and they can do it together with their kids. I do it together with my kids sometimes if they're having trouble falling asleep. And it's also, I mean, I don't know whether it's got to do with the nerves in your fingers, but it it's really calming just to feel that pressure along your fingers as you go up and down. That's right. I mean, we have a huge number of nerve endings in our hands. Yeah. And we use our hands to do everything. So the pathways between our hands and our minds and our bodies are very, very strong. So using our hands to help with our breathing, yeah, it's very, very tactile and it is it is very self-soothing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. And the, the th- I think you had one more? Yes, I did have one more. Yeah. So this one's a little bit more complex. Um, so we, t- we do touch on this with younger kids, um, but for older kids it's great. And it's about teaching them that our thoughts are not necessarily facts. And this can be really liberating. You know, our thoughts come and go in our minds just like our emotions come and go. And our thoughts are not always true or real. You know, for example, often we imagine something bad is going to happen, but it doesn't end up happening at all. Or we assume that someone's angry with us when really they were just busy with something else. And there's this great analogy that you can use, which is that our thoughts come along like buses in our minds. You know, some are positive and some are negative. And the more we get on a particular bus, the more likely it is that that bus will come along again. Our mind actually learns which buses we take, and so it sends along those buses more often. And if the thoughts are positive, obviously there's no problem. But the buses that we get on are often the buses which are self-critical and unkind, and they can undermine our self-confidence. The more we think, I can't do it, or I'm not good enough, and believe that thought without questioning it, the more likely it is that we'll have that thought again. And to believe these thoughts is to get on board a thought bus and let it take us for a ride. The thought bus I can't do it comes along, for example. And rather than just seeing it as a passing thought, we believe it. We think it's real. We think it's true. And it's as if we're getting on that bus and being carried away by it. Now, we can't stop these thought buses from appearing, but we can practice staying at the bus stop and not getting on board. You know, thoughts come and go, but you don't have to get on the bus. You can learn to stay at the bus stop and not let every thought that passes through your mind carry you away. And if you notice that you are on a particular thought bus, you can then choose to get off and come back to your breathing using breath counting or finger breathing. Now this one does take a bit of practice, but it's really important for children to understand that every thought they have is not necessarily true or real, Mm. especially the bad or negative thoughts. And it's also a really good practice to use at night if they have trouble falling asleep because often that's when their minds are working overtime and they can really work themselves up into anxiety, which prevents them getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. I am also going to use that one. Great. <laughs> Jody, these are good for everybody. I yes, love them I all. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're also good. So at what, what age do you think we can start teaching this sort of stuff to our children? Look, we can really start from very early on. Um, I have a good friend who, as I said before, who teaches a preschool class. Yeah. 
uh, four and five year olds and um, we sat down together and worked out a few activities that she could do with her class and she's run with it and they love it and she's now been teaching them for over six months um, all these amazing little techniques she built a meditation tent in her classroom where the kids can oh, go wow. yeah they have cushions in there they made these little eye masks and lavender bags oh, to smell might go visit that classroom <laughs> oh it's just beautiful and she puts a little she does uh, lunchtime meditations or after lunch meditations she puts this little um, crystal stone on their foreheads which helps them to stay still while they're um, doing a little mindfulness practice. And it's just beautiful. The kids absolutely love it. She was telling me yesterday, actually, that one of the kids went home and taught his whole family finger breathing. (laughs) Oh, that's so beautiful. What an amazing little group of humans that are going to grow up in that class. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we can teach primary school kids as well. I mean, I've just trained... Um, with Oxford University's Mindfulness in Schools project. So, um, yeah, so I've become an accredited teacher um, for their Dot B course, which is an eight to ten week course that we teach teenagers in high schools, and the PAUSE course, P-A-W-S, which is for primary school kids age 7 to 11. So really mindfulness can be taught, you know, from the get-go. Oh, and so it's so important for all those age groups. I mean, hello, HSC year. I mean, they should all be sitting down in meditation. Absolutely. And, you know, with the high school course, the Dot B course that we teach, we do a lot of those um, short meditations, short, short mindfulness practices mm. that can be done just before an exam. You know, when you're standing outside in the hall waiting to go in and you can feel that anxiety rising in your body your heart start pounding as you go into that fight or flight mode Um, and it can really shut off parts of our brain that we need to access when we're doing an exam. So using these techniques and these breathing techniques to switch our bodies over into the relaxation response can really help to re-engage those parts of our brains that help us to remember all the things that we learned for the exam and to think clearly and use logic and make good choices when we're answering all those questions yeah fantastic so how how does that program run out do you do you go into the schools or is it something that you're doing outside of schools yeah it's designed um by as i said oxford university mindfulness center together with psychologists and school teachers and neuroscientists to actually be run in classrooms in school um, so it runs, um, the idea is to teach a class, one class at a time, one um, session a week over the period of a term. So the classes um, are designed to fit within a 40-minute school period. Um, but then we can also um, train kids and, and do that training outside of school. So I do do that privately as well. And do you find that schools are quite open to this yeah. Um, look, I think it, um, it it really depends. There are so many more schools and teachers um, who are coming across this stuff in the States and in the UK. It's becoming part of the curriculum, really. Mm. Um, and when I just recently did some training um, with the Mindfulness in Schools project, they were talking about how it's now being entered into the International Baccalaureate, which a lot of international schools do, as a core subject. 
Yeah, wow. Yeah. So it's really just a matter of time before it rolls out through all the schools in Australia. I mean, we are slow to catch on, but there are already a number of schools um, around Sydney particularly who are teaching dot B in their um, to their high school kids. And the school that my kids go to at the moment, they've just started teaching the primary school course, the pause course. Oh, that's so fantastic. And hopefully they'll teach their parents when they get home. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I do go in and teach the staff. Ah, uh, oh, and that's also I'll... so important, of course. Yeah, really, I mean, I can't, I'm not trained to teach the staff to teach their kids, but I do give them practices that they can use with their students. And I also teach the staff for their own experience. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, yeah. it must be very stressful teaching children. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny because I was talking to the principal of a school late last year um, about the prospect of coming in and running Dot B for the high school students. And she actually said to me, Jodie, before we do that, I need you to come in and train the <laughs> staff for themselves. They're so stressed with the HSC coming up. I don't know who's more stressed, the staff or the kids. I know. I can imagine. I can yeah. imagine. Oh, that's so great. That's such a great initiative. If people want to know more about it or are interested in doing something with their school, what's the best thing for them to do? Yeah, is definitely contact me. Um, my email address is jody at mindfulfutureproject.com. And, um, yeah, and I can come in and have a chat to the teachers, to the principals, and I can run training for the staff. And then I can also come in and run the program for the kids at school. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, well, I'll put um, I'll put your details in the show notes for this episode so people can find you. Fabulous. Thank yeah. you. Oh, you're welcome. I think it's really exciting. I wish I had a child to practice all of this on. <laughs> you can <laughs> have to one. borrow one. <laughs> right. um, okay, so the other thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, and it's a big part of what I do at the Inspired Table, is mindful eating. Because mm-hmm. I think it's so important and it's something that comes up a lot with my clients um, because, you know, everybody focuses on eating the right things and sticking to the right diet. But half the time they're feeling quite stressed and guilty in the process and mm-hmm. they're not kind of tuning in with their own self-awareness and body awareness. So sure. can you talk to us a little bit about ways that you teach people to practice mindful eating? Yeah, absolutely. So in the courses that I teach, uh, we actually visit mindful eating on three separate occasions. So the first is about noticing that when we're on autopilot in our lives, you know, we don't really notice what's going on around us. We're not paying attention to the small details of every moment, which can bring us so much joy and connection. Now, eating even just the first bite of a meal mindfully can really teach us to savor all the tiny details of our experience that would normally rush by without us noticing. And not just our food, but our moments with our kids, with our loved ones. You know, moments where we often don't look up to see the sky, the trees around us, the beauty that's surrounding us and that's available to us every day. And eating mindfully means using all of our senses to really notice the smell, the sight, the touch, the taste of our food, as well as all the tiny movements in our mouths and our bodies that are involved in chewing and swallowing and the effect that the food has on our bodies. 
And when we eat slowly and mindfully, we become more in tune with our eating patterns. We're more likely then to make better choices in how and when and how much we eat. Mm. We might also notice how we react to foods that are hot or spicy or that we don't like. And this teaches us a lot about our reactions in life. You know, if we can notice how we are reacting in the moment that it happens, then we create a space in which we can choose how we wish to respond instead. You know, there's this great quote from neuroscientist and psychologist Viktor Frankl, who's a survivor of the Holocaust, and he says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. And that's just such a beautiful summing up of mindfulness and what it can offer to us Mm. and you know mindful eating not only helps us to really savor the moments in life to be really in tune with our bodies but also can help us to notice how we're reacting in life so that we can create that space and choose to respond mindfully instead and then I guess the third time we visit mindful eating is in relation to gratitude you know, taking a moment to consider where our food came from. And I know this is, you know, a big part of, um, of what you're about. You know, who grew this vegetable or fruit? Where did this meat come from? Yeah. Did it need sunshine and rain, the right temperatures, the right soil? You know, what did it take to bring this food to you? And how many people were involved in the process? And we talk about that. And then we talk about what about you? You know, what did it take to bring you to this point? Yeah. So you're here today, you know, listening to this podcast. What things have made it possible for you to exist and be sitting here today? And then how do you feel as you become aware of all the different factors supporting your life? Gratitude and deliberately paying attention to what's going well in our lives is, isn't always easy. Finding the stuff to be happy about, the good stuff, can really take a conscious effort. We have to choose to turn towards the positive in our lives. And sometimes we need other people to remind us to do this. But once we do, there are huge benefits. There's so much research to suggest that being grateful and showing your gratitude to others is actually really good for you. You know, it increases happiness and connection. It boosts the immune system and it can also relieve symptoms of stress and depression. The famous psychologist Martin Seligman developed a practice that can be done each night before you go to sleep and we talk about this in the course and it's called the three good things practice. So before you go to sleep at night, you think of three things you're grateful for. Could be feeling grateful for a loved one or for your physical health or even a comment that someone made or something really nice that you ate. And research on this practice showed that doing this exercise for just a few weeks increased happiness and decreased depressive symptoms for up to six months. I mean, it's so powerful. Mm. So getting back to your question, I think, you know, mindful eating can really open up a lot of different avenues to um, getting a deeper understanding of mindfulness as well as, you know, having the benefit of being able to develop a different relationship with our food yeah definitely and you know what I think I think that we used to you know way back in the day there used to be a lot more mindfulness around the food that we eat and I think that you know as this kind of 
um, rise of fast food and convenience food and eating on the run has come about, we've really kind of stepped away from it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the whole concept of family sitting around and taking a moment to say a prayer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a blog post. It was a while ago now, but it was about, you know, bringing back that ritual of saying grace. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious thing, but Mm. it's just, yeah, taking the time to be grateful for the food that you're about to eat. That's right. And really, it doesn't take long. It doesn't need to be a five-minute drawn-out process. No. (laughs) You know, just 10 seconds of looking at the plate and noticing the colours and the textures and just considering for a moment where it came from and feeling so happy that, you know, you're about to eat this beautiful meal. Yeah. And I I really like what you said as well of just being – conscious about it I think a lot of people think you know as you sort of get into this spiritual space and this mindfulness space and you're talking about food that you really kind of you know need to either be vegetarian or vegan in order to fully embrace it but you know I think there's a lot to be said about just being conscious of where that food is coming from and if that happens to be meat for you then being conscious about the way that animal was raised and, you know, how it got onto your plate. Absolutely. And, you know, and in a way even being, you know, appreciative of the fact that it gave its life so that you could have a meal to eat. Yeah. It's going to nourish your body and help you to be well. There's actually this quote um, by the Dalai Lama that I love and he is actually a carnivore, which surprised me the first time I found out but Mm -hmm. he says um, it is always dangerous to ignore the suffering of any living being of whatever species even if we think it necessary to sacrifice an animal for the benefit of the majority to deny the suffering involved or to avoid thinking about it is a convenient solution sympathy and compassion always end up proving beneficial So, you know, I have been guilty of that most definitely in the past where I'm, you know, happy to eat the lamb on my plate, but I don't want to think about it as a lamb. You know, I'll just pretend it's not meat and I'm just eating it for the enjoyment of it. But I think that there's much to be said about owning up to the fact that it is a lamb and that you are eating it and being thankful for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot more discussion to be had around this point. Yes, it's a big Uh, topic. (laughs) It is, it is. And look, it's one that I think we all struggle with, you know, and I struggle with that with my kids as well. Um, And coming to the different choices uh, that we have around what we eat. Beautiful. So much to think about. Um, Jodie, if people want to find out more about you and the work you do with Mindful Future Project, what's the best way for them to find you? Well, I am in the process of developing my website. Um, I decided many years ago that I would do the work (laughs) first. Yeah, nice. Um, And then when it became absolutely necessary, I would build a website. Um, And it's now getting to that point. Um, so in the meantime, I have a Facebook community uh, that you can find me on where I post blogs that I write for Wellbeing Magazine on mindfulness as well as articles and um, inspirational quotes, etc., etc., as well as information about courses that I run. So you can look up Mindful Future on Facebook and connect with me there. 
Otherwise, send me an email, um, jody at mindfulfutureproject.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Yeah, beautiful. And like I said, I'll put I'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can find you. Fantastic. Um, yeah, thank you so much. This has been so great. And um, Thank you so much for having me, Jordy. Hopefully we can create a mindful future. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the idea. If you liked this week's episode, head on over to the blog for all the show notes, theinspiredtable.com.au. And if you're looking for a little bit of inspiration before next week's episode, come and find me on Instagram at The Inspired Table or over on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Inspired Table. Until next week's episode, I'm Jordana Levine wishing you an inspirational week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.